welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am joined by Professor Claudia Escort, Professor of Sexual Health and HIV, to talk about her work on an ambitious new £2.5 million research project that will revolutionise the way sexually transmitted infections are treated. Claudia, brilliant to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining me today. Good morning and thanks very much for having me. Before we talk about the research project, Claudia, let's talk about sexually transmitted infections or STIs for short. How big an issue are STIs in the UK? Well, we've known for a long time that the sexual health of people in the UK is poor compared to other European countries. And there are around about half a million STIs diagnosed every year across the countries of the nation. Why is it poor compared to other countries? That's a really good question and there are many factors that play into this. Partly stigma, people are slow to talk about their health when it, turn, when it entails sexually transmitted infections. Partly they may not necessarily know that they're at risk of STIs. Many STIs are present without symptoms, so unless you go for a checkup, you won't necessarily find out about them. And then finally, over, over years, there's been disinvestment in sexual health services, so we know that people can find considerable barriers to actually getting the care that they need. What are the most common types of STI? The most common STI is an infection called chlamydia that many people have heard about, but sadly an awful lot of people haven't. That's a bacterial STI that's curable with antibiotics. Other names that people will have heard of are gonorrhea, syphilis, and herpes infection. And of course, we mustn't forget that HIV is also sexually transmitted. And that's something that people tend to see as separate, but within my field clinically, it's very much part of the same continuum. So what effects can STIs have on people if they go untreated? Well, I think uh, there are some common uh, health consequences across many STIs and some that are very specific. I think in terms of HIV, um, people, I think, now have a fairly good understanding that left untreated, HIV can eat, eat away at someone's immune system, which makes them susceptible to many infections. Happily, that doesn't happen these days because we're generally very good at getting people diagnosed and treatment is fantastic. So people will have a normal, near normal life expectancy. With some of the STIs, unfortunately, it tends to be women who uh, bear the what we call the burden of infection, so where the majority of the bad health consequences lie. So, for example, uh, women may become infertile, they may become uh, have difficulty with long-term lower tummy or pelvic pain, um, there may be difficulties with sex subsequently as a result of these complications. Men get off, uh, get off relatively lightly, um, <laughs> but they can have trouble with severe testicular symptoms, testicular pain, um, but the, the, really the high impact is felt by women of reproductive age. These are really serious consequences that STIs can have in people. Do you think people are really aware of the consequences? Uh, no, I don't think people are really aware of the consequences. And I think it's not helped by the fact that STIs are so easy to be shared between couples or between people in relationships and people who perhaps just meet for a, a one-off episode of sex. But the vast majority will have infections which are there with no symptoms. But unfortunately, even infections with no symptoms can, over the years, if left untreated, cause problems. Um, particularly, we think about women and problems with their fallopian tubes becoming blocked as a result of long-term chlamydial infections. So what are the current health provisions available for treating STIs? You mentioned earlier that, that treatment has had its funding cut. 
Um, I go one step um, upstream of that. And the most important thing across the whole of medicine is that prevention is better than cure. So um, there are many methods to prevent STIs. The one that people often know about, but don't necessarily like are condoms, which will protect people against the majority of STIs and HIV to uh, do a very good effect. Um, there have been many advances in these over the years, but uh, no matter what you do, coming for good checkups and regular checkups, if you've had a change in sexual partner or had several sexual partners over a few months period is really important. That's largely because um, not everyone uses condoms all of the time. You can have accidents with condoms and it's just important to get checked for those infections. Obviously, uh, sexual health clinics across the country really struggle but try and do a very good job in encouraging people to come forward for testing for checkups and treating them when they have any symptoms uh, there have been massive changes uh, due to covid in people's access to these services course, yeah. but even before covid we knew that there was a massive level of unmet need and demand for our services was way greater than what we could actually provide and this really has given us the the kick to start thinking about how we can provide services in a seamless and easier way as possible to cater for people who might be able to do some um, self-management of their own uh, needs so that we can still continue to provide face-to-face -face services for people when they need them. As you've perfectly teed up my next question, Claudia, because we're going to ask about your research project. This will digitally revolutionise the way that STIs are treated. Can you give us an outline of what it is you're working on? So I think um, looking at how we provide healthcare to the largest number of people in the most appropriate, acceptable ways is clearly a goal of anybody working within the NHS. And it fits very much with not just Scotland's health strategy, but uh, world health strategies. It almost uh, over half of all of the countries in the world have a digital health strategy. And it's really to cope with the demands of um, an aging population, a growing population and uh, mindful of the fact that advances mean that people may be able to do more of their healthcare for themselves as long as that's really supported and as long as they feel comfortable to do so and as long as that's safe medically. So in terms of the world of sexually transmitted infections, about 15 years ago, uh, tests were developed which people could take their own samples rather than needing to be in an examination room on the couch having a doctor or a specialist nurse examining them and the fact that people can take their own samples opened up the opportunity for having sampling kits sent to their homes or to a private place where they could take the samples themselves pop them back in the post for the laboratories to do the testing and then only pitch up to clinic if they had an infection that needed treating. And that really set the scene for us being able to think about how we could be much more ambitious, provide much more care online, and really try and develop a system, a virtual sexual health clinic or an e-sexual health clinic that would provide people with all of the elements of care they would get uh, had they come to clinic and seen me or one of my team face to face. And that really set the scene for the work that we're going to do over the next five years. Talk about the process then, Claudia. If a person suspects they might have chlamydia, what would happen next? 
So generally speaking, uh, the person would need to contact a sexual health service or their GP. The majority of people um, actually do go through sexual health services at the moment in Scotland. And what they would do is perhaps look online to see when their sexual health service uh, opened, uh, phone their sexual health service. They might need to make an appointment to come in for a checkup, or if they're very lucky, but really just in pilot form in Scotland at the moment, they may be able to get a kit sent out to them. Um, without exception at the moment in Scotland, if you have a diagnosed infection, you would need to see someone face to face to have that infection treated and uh, to be helped identify um, sex partners over a, a shortish time frame who may have been exposed to the infection, may not know about it, and would also need testing and potentially treating themselves. So under this digital revolution, if the person suspects they've got a, an STI, they would test themselves at home. What would happen next? So um, there are a number of different scenarios, but at its simplest level, if you thought you may be at risk of an STI, you thought you may have symptoms that could be an STI, you'd be able to go online, log on and request a self-sampling kit. The kit would arrive through the post and you'd have instructions in the kit and perhaps a film online to show you how to use it if you wanted additional information. Having taken the samples, which would be a swab from the vulva vaginal area or a sample of urine in the case of a man and swabs from other parts of your body, which may be of relevance, uh, you would also uh, take a finger prick blood test uh, to be tested for syphilis, HIV and other types of bloodborne viruses. Send the kit back to the laboratory and you would receive your result uh, by text or by logging onto a website a few days later. At that point, if you have an infection called chlamydia, which as we said is the most common bacterial infection, you'd be asked if you wanted to follow a link to an online consultation. And by doing so on your phone or on your laptop, you would answer a few questions in an online consultation. And if it was safe to do so, you could have a prescription zapped to your phone, you could pick up a prescription at the pharmacy, or you might request that your medication be sent to you through the post. That sounds incredible, just the, 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 how it streamlines the process, that it can, for people's privacy, for people's sense of well-being, for people's, like, if they're embarrassed about it, that really sounds like such a, a much more straightforward process than the one we've got in place already. Um, I think that's debatable because I think it depends on what an individual user wants to do at any particular time, and that might very much depend on their emotional context. In the context of a bad breakup, you might well want the reassurance of seeing someone face to face. If perhaps you've had some sex that you were a bit worried about, um, doing it all for yourself isn't necessarily for everybody. And I think one of the most important things which uh, we focus on tremendously in other parts of GCU is whether people both want some self-managed care and whether people are actually able to do so. And I think it's very uh, difficult sometimes to really put yourself in someone else's shoes. And there are people who may be using um, their phones, they may be Snapchatting, they may be using TikTok the whole time. But actually, in order to navigate health online, no matter how much we strive to make it simple, easy and accessible, there are people in society who may not wish to do that and may not have the skills to be able to do that. So we're never talking about this as a replacement. We're talking about offering this to people who see this as an attractive option for people for whom this is a safe method of care and for who and people who know that at any point they can this is within their sexual health service they just happen to be accessing it online and this is fully supported by a telephone helpline and services face to face 
So if, for example, I have chlamydia, I'm answering these questions online, and my response to the question, do you have any pain deep in your stomach? If I put yes, that will be flagged to say, Claudia, you need to come in, we want to examine you, you'll be fine, but we need to go through those checks before we can work out exactly what the right treatment is for you. And that it's really important that people are helped to navigate that, who are offered a number of appointment options, and so that they don't fall um, out of the system we follow them up just as well as we would do if we'd seen them initially face to face. So this isn't for everybody all of the time. This is for the people who wish to use it, for whom it's medically safe, and the people who can really use it to navigate their healthcare. Do you think this kind of thing, Claudia, could be used to treat other illnesses, not just STIs? I think certainly the, te the technology that we are using and actually the thinking behind it works on uh, what's called an automated clinical decision-making algorithm. And what that means is it's a series of questions that we have rigorously tested with members of the public of different types, different backgrounds and different levels of education that we feel confident that the question, the words that we've put online is understood by a broad selection of society as the question that we're really asking them so that we have confidence that when they reply to that question, we're getting an accurate assessment of how they feel and what their symptoms are. And that really is the underpinning principle behind any sort of prescribing in medicine. It's a long process to get to that. It can feel very easy when a, an experienced clinician asks you a series of questions face to face, but bearing in mind, we can always ask supplementary questions face to face, we can check. There are lots of nonverbal clues that we're getting as to whether we think somebody may or may not have accurately understood. And there's always the opportunity for the person to say, doctor, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you ask me that in a more simple way? We can't do that online. So we have to develop those questions in a very robust and rigorous way. And they need to go numerous checks to make sure we think that what the, that prescribing is safe. The fact that we've managed to do this for one infection with one antibiotic already is no mean feat. And mm. we're going to try that in a much larger study. We believe that it's safe, but we have to prove that because this the, the element that everybody who's not a doctor or a prescribing nurse thinks is a no-brainer, this automated prescribing, has never happened anywhere in the world before because this goes to the very heart of prescribing uh, to regulations, which talks about prescribing with appropriate knowledge of the patient. But the, pioneer, the really pioneering bit of what we do is to be able to prove that this set of questions is absolutely robust it's as safe as if I was asking somebody face to face, we actually think it might be safer, and that a person using this is not any worse off than having answered those questions with me face to face. And that's the USP. It's not artificial intelligence, it's a different system, but it's a way of doing something at very wide scale. And we're not interested in anything that cannot be rolled out 24 seven, mm -hmm. that cannot be rolled out um, in an automated way. So this could work beautifully for people needing to up or lower their dose of blood pressure medication, people needing to up or lower their diabetes management. Even in something, we had a pathway that we developed for pandemic flu way before COVID as to whether it was safe to give somebody flu treatment, Tamiflu, 
without needing to head for a test. So another example, for example, is sore throat. You would go to your GP, you would have a swab that potentially the GP could do then and there. If it looked like it was bacterial, you could be at home and then answer your questions online and have your antibiotics at the pharmacy. You might want to do it for a cystitis or a urinary tract infection. Um, so all sorts of pathways that could reduce the workload on the health service, but also most importantly, make it acceptable, quick and easy for the person with the symptoms and also avoid over prescription of antibiotics in these days when we're being much more careful about ensuring we're treating the right person with the right antibiotic for the right infection. Now this project, Claudia, this is going to last five years. Can you outline how these five years are going to look? Do you have a roadmap? Yeah, we do. Um, and I think it's important to say that this, this five-year funding is predicated by five years of research prior to this. So in order to have got to this point, we've already shown that our e-sexual health clinic has, is uh, safe and acceptable and probably cost uh, at, at, at a good health economic uh, analysis outcome in, in exploratory studies. So if I'm going to rephrase that, I would say we've already shown that the e-sexual health clinic is safe, it's effective, and the costs are looking good in exploratory studies, but we now need to take this to much larger numbers of people mm -hmm. in a trial. And medicine moves slowly, but it's important that it moves slowly because things have to be done in a way that's robust and that's safe. There are no shortcuts. So in order to do that, we've taken this forward into a five-year study, but one of the big, big pieces of work that we're doing is looking for health inequalities. And that relates back to what we were discussing a little bit earlier, that we need to make sure that this is accessible to as wide a range of people in society as possible, that we can hopefully identify exactly who might struggle with it and offer them alternatives right at the start, that people who do start and feel that they don't like it partway through don't get lost in the system as a safety net to pick them up. So this really is a piece of work that we didn't do initially. Initially, we just looked at proof of concept. So we've got proof of concept. We know it looks good but we have to now evaluate this properly in terms of cost effectiveness, but also in terms of who might, who might miss out if this, is, if this is used without alternatives, how low can we create the bar, how low can we go to make it as accessible as possible whilst meaning that it's still safe. So in five years time then, Claudia, what's the, the best outcome for this project? So the best outcome that we might have a Scottish e-sexual health clinic that everybody who's diagnosed with chlamydia in Scotland could access their care this way, that we've extended pathways of this, we're already looking at, we already have a rudimentary pathway to let sex partners of people with infections receive testing and care this way. And certainly we're looking in England, one of our co-investigators is the clinical director for the National Chlamydia Screening Programme in England. And we're looking that this could be the main method of treatment for all of those people who test via that programme in England. Looking further afield internationally, we're linking up with colleagues in Australia who are just a couple of years behind us and looking to help them with a programme to do something similar over there. And obviously what's important for us is not that it stays restricted to sexual health, but that we show that there's wider applicability mm -hmm. across the whole of medicine and that these automated prescribing pathways are used at scale across a variety of health conditions to really minimise the barriers to accessing care for a wide range of people and also mean that the health service ever in need of resources is able to prioritise those resources on people who don't want DIY care, which mm. is perfectly appropriate.
Now, the project received £2.5 million in funding from the National Institute for Health Research. How did the grant come around? So with grants, this is a prestigious funding stream from NIHR and grants of this size, uh, you have to have a multidisciplinary team of co-investigators. There are 13 of us mm. of some of the brightest, most eminent minds across clinical medicine, epidemiology, human computer interaction, health psychology, statistics, lay people, healthcare commissioners. So the net is really wide and it's the only way of creating systems which work, systems which are adequately investigated and systems that we think that people will use. So it's very easy to develop an app. You can develop an app in a weekend. It does not mean that that app is useful, usable and used. And that's really what we are looking for. And we also need to know who, no matter how well we co-create this with a wide section of the population, will never be able to use this or who wants to use it at which particular times. So we spend a lot of time doing preliminary research, showing the funders that we've got an idea that's got legs, showing the evidence behind that idea and the need for it. So really reiterating the answers to some of the questions that you've asked already and showing that at the end of five years, what's the impact of this going to be? And very importantly, showing how people, not just the investigators, will be used in this and showing that all of our research methods are cutting edge and that they're robust and that uh, we're not over-promising in terms of what we want to deliver. You've spoken about the wide net there and touching some of the partner universities and health boards you're working with. There's the University College of London, University of Strathclyde, University of Birmingham, Bart's Health NHS Trust, NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, the West Sussex NHS Foundation Trust and the Camden and Islington Council and Central and Northwest London NHS Foundation Trust. Me take a breath after saying all that. How do you how do you bring so many people to, together in that sphere, Claudia? Because I know you're the the principal investigator on mm -hmm. this project. So I suppose it's a two pronged question. How do you bring everyone together, and then what's your role then within this? Mm -hmm. So I think for me as principal investigator, I um, have the luxury of creating my, my absolute dream team of colleagues I wish to work with, because the whole point about research is that if you stick in your silo, if you stick in your institution, A, you're very unlikely to be able to have people who can fulfill all of those roles because different institutions major on different bits and different specialties. And secondly, what you need to have is a group of people who you know can work together, because these grants are very, very demanding. Two and a half million sounds like a lot of money, but you've basically had to sell your granny's hat cupboard in order to get <laughs> off, uh, get off dough. So they're actually very leanly costed. So you need to have people who will challenge each other intellectually, but generally can work together because there's no room for spats. There's no room for pitch warfare. We've all got to work together. And crucially, um, people don't work in silos within the programme. We are all interested. So one of the programmes I'm working on, other programmes I'm working on, will have a mathematical modeler who writes papers with pages and pages of beautiful equations who will be engaged in a very good natured academic argument with the health psychologist, with one of them saying, now I understand, I think I understand what you're saying. Actually explain this bit. Or the other one saying, nah. All of this modelling, you need to listen to this bit of health psychology. So it's, it's a very dynamic and very exciting environment for us as researchers. 
I'm there keeping everyone together, making sure we keep, we have a common purpose and making sure that we do challenge, that we don't like each other so much, that we're afraid of saying, hang on, explain to me again why we're doing it this way. So it's being open to ideas. It's looking at the world as it changes over five years and looking at how you might or might not need to adapt. It's about bringing in people who genuinely want to have fun on a program, meet the best minds in the specialty, but work in an agile way. Be prepared to adapt. See opportunities as you go along and seize them because they might not crop up again, not just because you know, someone tells you it's a good idea. We also want to bring on our junior researchers. Mm -hmm. So all of the junior researchers who get funded as part of it have a named mentor amongst the senior co-investigators. So we look at their progression, look at what next for them after the program, support them if they want to go on and develop side projects. We look at encouraging in PhD students who want the opportunity of working with um, very experienced researchers. And in terms of the environments, I'm old now, I've worked all over the place. So I've picked up a whole variety of people I love working with over the years and they form my dream team when we have a, a statistical shaped, uh, shaped hole, that's Professor Kopat. When we have an infectious disease uh, shaped hole, that's my colleague Professor Sonnenberg at UCL. So we've worked together in the past, we know which roles we need and we know how we will challenge each other, but ultimately we all want success at the end of it. Now you've been at GCU for just over four years, Claudia. I'm going to ask, just touching your academic career, why did you choose to uh, study sexual health? At heart, I'm a doctor. So as part of my training, I got very interested early on when HIV was becoming uh, a really emerging infection and the immunology of HIV, the sort of people who were being most affected by HIV, I felt was a very attractive environment in which to, in which to work. There were lots of questions intellectually, but also it was about communication. It was about showing people who felt very stigmatized that they had a welcome environment within the hospital. They could come, they could tell us things that were deeply private that perhaps they'd never talked to anybody else about and we would care for them regardless. We had to be on it in terms of the medical advances, we had to be offering care in a very changing field but we also had to have a very strong voice, we had to advocate for people, we had to fight against uh, prejudice, we had to fight against stigma. And along with that uh, was the other world of STIs. So half of my week was looking after people who in those days had quite a limited health uh, or life expectancy before highly active antiretroviral medication. And the other half was in clinics, sorting out people who might be equally distressed, but for a shorter time period, who may have had an STI, who needed treating, uh, who we might see several times, but we cured them. And then they were back with another infection or perhaps needing another checkup. So it was a mix of the two, and it's an environment which I find very socially progressive. Uh, it tends to attract people who, uh, who are uh, not afraid of challenging the establishment, who like change, who embrace change, and uh, can't be doing with ridiculous rules and regulations. So I think that all of that put together gives me a happy place in what I'm doing at the moment. I've got one more question, Claudia, before we go. Could you talk to me about GCU researchers within this project? I'm absolutely delighted that uh, one of my postdoc students who started off doing her PhD uh, several years ago at GCU is coming through from a program that we've just finished and she's just started on this new, new program looking at e-health and e-sexual health. 
I think that's a fantastic success story. It just really shows that somebody who might be, in inverted commas, a lowly PhD student <laughs> can come through GCU, have experience in different research fields, and having just completed one programme looking at HIV prevention with me is, has secured herself a top job in this new consortium where she will expand her skills, look at uh, engaging with other experts in the field, not just in Scotland, but in England and elsewhere. And I think for GCU, I think it's a success story. You can succeed at the highest level of science in GCU, and there are always exciting opportunities for your next step. Excellent, that's brilliant to hear, Claudia, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. This project sounds really exciting, and I wish you and the team the best of luck for it over the next five years. Thank you. Thank you very much, Craig. I'd also like to thank everyone for tuning into the show today and I hope you can join us again soon when we'll be talking with another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening to us from. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast. Mm-hmm.